0: This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them to your doorstep. Huge thanks also to our Patreon supporters for this episode, Amanda Derringer-Downs, Eleanor Taylor, Jill Searich, Christina Cavadon, Sandra Bickish, Craig Williamson, Jill Harrigan, Heather McKinnon, Ellen Gross, Valerie Jacobson, Chantelle Oliver, Maria Carla Sanchez, Jamie Lang, Mandy Booty, Monique Harris Pixotto, Caitlin McTaggart, and Lindsay Cummings. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. What do you get when you combine a British Catholic country squire? Okay. An American feminist medievalist. Uh... And a broken ping pong ball. (laughs) Uh, this is the weirdest riddle I ever... (laughs) The answer is... Okay. The first autobiography ever written in the English language. (gasps) What? (laughs) Okay... I know that you know the first autobiography ever written in the English language. The Book of Marjorie Kemp. (laughs) There is an entire chapter of my dissertation about this. (gasps) In that chapter of my dissertation, which you clearly have not read, I've read it. I argue that it is not an autobiography. It's a saint's life, which is not the same thing. To which I say... (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have lots of fights. Oh my in this gosh, episode. great. And I know you love when we disagree. I do. I these. love it. I do too, because I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> this is fascinating. Chapter two of my dissertation starts with, what is an autobiography? And I will begin with page 30. Let's this read through. This is true. my episode.
1: <clears throat> oh.
0: <laughs> Yay. Fight! 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 I'm Olivia Mickle, And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. On September 30th, 1934, there was a house party at the butler Bowden Stately Home. Oh. And the guests were engaged in a lively match of ping-pong. when the ping-pong ball broke. Oh! Now all these bright young things start digging through all of the cupboards, trying to find another ping-pong ball. And they (laughs) unearth all sorts of weird things that haven't seen the light of day in generations, including a weird old book. They start looking at it. This is really old. Huh. I wonder if there's anyone around who can read this. (laughs) And... Conveniently on hand is well-known American medievalist Hope Emily Allen. I love when you just conveniently have an American medievalist hanging around. Yes, I mean, every good party should have an American feminist medievalist on hand. Of course. She volunteered to take a look, see what this was. And I I love to imagine being a fly on the wall as this woman who has dedicated her life Mm. discovers... That this is a completely unknown book written by a woman 600 years earlier. Ah! Uh, it's so awesome. I mean, medieval women were not taught to read and write. We have so little left. I mean, it I would would I would be freaking out. Yeah, this was one of the biggest finds in English literature. We've talked about these kind of miraculous finds, right? Mm. We did stumble mm-hmm. onto the abandoned house full of Florence Price's music manuscripts or we find Hester Poulter's manuscript in a random box in an archive. But Mm -hmm. this one is truly magical. This is just shoved in the back of a cupboard in someone's house. And we're very lucky that we have it because Lieutenant Colonel Butler Bowden threatened to put the whole lot on the bonfire tomorrow so that they would be able to put ping-pong balls and bats in the cupboard. (laughs) Luckily, (sighs) Dr. Allen intervened. Yeah. Maybe don't burn this. Yeah, The only copy in existence (laughs) of the book of Marjorie Kemp. (laughs) And this is one of the things that I absolutely love the most about medieval literature, because it is completely random what we have Mm -hmm. and we have no way of knowing if this book that we have one copy of was considered to be good at the time if this was the biggest bestseller of the decade Mm -hmm. and (laughs) i think part of me loves the idea that some aspiring writer who could only get six people to read their book at the time is now studied in every single college course is treated as the biggest genius of their age and maybe they were popular and maybe they were nobody yeah i love it. as a writer i really (laughs) want to believe that someday someone will find our book ah and they'll go go... this is the (laughs) finest example of writing that was ever produced in the 21st century it's gonna happen (laughs) it is now katie I know Mm -hmm. you have feelings about Marjorie Kemp. (laughs) (laughs) I have adored her since I first encountered this book in college. I know you don't love her quite as much as I do. Uh, Yeah, I don't love her. Okay, here's my bias. We just (laughs) laid on the table at the beginning. All right. It's all about her religious conversion. And I'm like, ah, you know what else you could have written down? Details about life in the 1300s. That might have been Uh helpful. (laughs) It gets old. Oh, I had a religious conversion. Oh, my sins. <laughs> Righteousness. Like, no, tell me what you had for breakfast. <laughs> my mission in this episode is to try to convert you. Okay. Because I'm right, and she's delightful. <laughs> On this mission, I have a powerful ally, because we are bringing back an old friend. Ooh, author Mary Sherritt. Cool.
1: My name is Mary Sherrett, and I'm on a mission to write strong women back into history. She's great.
0: Author of so many great historical novels, Illuminations, Ecstasy, Daughters of the Witching Hill, The Dark Lady's Mask, and she has been our guest on our episodes on Alma Mahler and our first Halloween special, Telling Us About the Pendle Witches. Yeah. And her new book, Revelations, is about the life of Marjorie Kemp. 15th century mystic and world traveler. I have a lot of faith in Mary Sherritt and I think I'm sure she has unearthed amazing things that I was previously unaware of and maybe she'll convince me I'm open.
1: My reason for wanting to write a novel about Marjorie Camp is that up until now she's been the exclusive provenance of medievalist graduate studies like PhD candidates and all these people have written a lot of uh, academic literature about her. But thus far, she's not been that accessible to the average person. So I wanted to write a book about her to make her accessible because I think she's really fun. And I think she's unfairly had a bad rap. She was born in 1373 the
0: same year that julian of norwich the famous visionary anchoress mystic wrote her book revelations of divine love now this is by people who are into medieval religious texts sort of the standard it is the british expression of female spirituality and visionary Mm -hmm.
1: stuff And she grew up in Bishop's Lynn, which is now King's Lynn. It was a mercantile town. At that time, it was a large, important, wealthy town. She was the mayor's daughter. She loved clothes. She said as a young person, she was very vain. And she led this worldly life. And she had to marry this guy. She didn't seem so enthusiastic about it. And she thought he was a bit beneath her and it turned sour pretty fast. I think if she had been a modern woman, she would have dumped him, but that wasn't an option at the time. And she couldn't even say, not tonight, dear, I have a headache. Canon Law said she was not allowed to refuse her husband, so he was entitled to her. So she wrote in her autobiography that she would rather drink the muck from the gutters than have sex with her husband. Basically, she experienced years and years of what we would now call marital rape, but it was not recognized as such. And she was also a businesswoman. She wasn't just a mother of 14 children. She had two businesses. First, she had a brewery, and she made quite a bit of money that way. But then when that business failed, she started a horse-drawn grain mill.
0: So she's living this life as a semi-prosperous businesswoman. Her husband is abusive and terrible and is spending all her money so fast that the businesses keep failing. She's miserable. She's well and truly stuck. She is deeply religious. She has these visions, terrible and wonderful, seeing demons tormenting her, but also these glorious visitations from Christ, from Mary, from the saints. Mm hmm. She feels that she has been an eyewitness to the crucifixion and other important events in the Bible, and her response to religious feeling or experiences is very out of the norm for her time and place. She's known as the weeping mystic because she weeps a lot. (laughs) She is often overcome by strong emotion when she meditates on the sufferings of Christ, and she makes... What was thought of as a spectacle of herself a lot. And of course, when this book is discovered, this is the height of burgeoning pop psychology, right? Yeah. Psychoanalysis has finally sort of hit mainstream and people are talking about it a lot. So the instant reaction to this book is what is wrong with Marjorie Kemp? And we have. <laughs> decades of analysis trying to diagnose Marjorie Kemp. I love that. I enjoy retroactively diagnosing historical characters with things mm-hmm. too. But I think it really has hampered our ability to understand who Marjorie Kemp is or take her at her word. Yeah. Rather than pathologize it.
1: Yeah. People call her the weeping mystic. And there are all these 20th century theories. I mean, all this um, psychoanalysis, like she had psychosis or was uh, an epileptic, hysterionic personality disorder that is supposedly something that only women have because if men get upset, it's okay, apparently.
0: (laughs) Maybe she just had visions. Yeah. And maybe... She just... Her religious affectation didn't match the country she was born in. Mm. I mean, I don't want to play into stereotypes here, but the British are not known for their overly emotional displays in public. (laughs) And when a woman is weeping loudly in church, it's embarrassing. Mm. And there is clearly something wrong with her and we (laughs) should probably remove her from the building. When Marjorie Kemp arrives in Italy, this is understood as a gift. This is understood as a much more direct and clear understanding of God. The things that she is hated and reviled for in England make her a superstar in Europe, in the Near East. Weeping on the floor in Jerusalem makes her wildly unpopular with her British tour group, but (laughs) endears her to her Egyptian Muslim guide. Delightful. It's just a cultural mismatch. Yeah. And I think a lot of this experience that I know a lot of people who feel that the majority of their problem may just be that they were born in the wrong culture. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how many movies are there of women who traveled to Italy and went, these are my people. Right. (laughs) That's one of our modern narratives. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I mean, this one of the ways that this book is often described is a medieval eat, pray, love. Yes. That Marjorie Kemp sets off to discover herself and her life and her truth. Yeah. And no one's going to stop her. Yep. Okay, so we've spoiled a bit here. Marjorie is going to become a world traveler, but how on earth does she get there? At a time when most people in England would probably never travel more than no. 50 miles from their home. No, never. No, most people would never travel more than one mile from yeah. their house. <laughs> so how is this woman ending up halfway across the world?
1: My theory is she had 14 children. And if you think of what that can do to a woman's body, in my book, she has her 14th child, and she realizes a 15th child will probably kill her. And she can't trust her husband not to impregnate her. So there's only one choice. She has to leave.
0: Sometime around 1413 she is suddenly handed an impossibly rare opportunity to quite literally walk away from it all.
1: Her father dies and leaves her a generous bequest to go on pilgrimage and basically tells her to go on pilgrimage to pray for him. That's
0: a very convenient
1: excuse. hmm I'm praying for my dad's immortal soul. How dare you prevent me?
0: We are presuming that her father probably meant a local pilgrimage. Yeah, like on the island. Scoot on over to Canterbury. <laughs> Marjorie had bigger plans. She is not going to go to Canterbury. She's not even going to settle for Spain and the Santiago de Compostela. Marjorie decides she is going to Jerusalem. Wow! Wow! If she's doing this, she's going to do it right. And she is going to the Holy Land alone. And if I had 14 children by the age of 40, I think I might decide to be a wandering mystic too. (laughs) Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. The end of the school year is approaching for many of us now, and I know some parents are, like us, staring into that yawning, empty chasm of summer, realizing (laughs) we've got to find something new for our children to do. (laughs) That's where Girls Can Crate is a lifesaver. Every month, they'll deliver a brand new real life Shiro to your front door, introducing kids to a fascinating woman who changed the world, complete with a gorgeous 28 page activity book, all the materials for two to three STEAM activities like experiments, art projects, and more. It's a wonderful educational surprise for any kid from ages five to 10. For busy families, they have digital subscriptions and mini crates too. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com C R A T E, and use the coupon code HERNAME all one word, to get 20% off your first month's crate.
1: So she wanted to have a blessing before she went, or she wanted to have counsel from another woman. So she went to Julian of Norwich, who lived not so far away. Bishop's Lynn is about 40 miles away, I believe, from uh, Norwich, where Julian lived. Julian was about 30 years older, and she was an anchorite. So she had chosen of her own free will to enclose herself in, literally wall herself into a cell built on the back of the church. And there she wrote her book of her divine visions, revelations of divine love. And she also was kind of an agony aunt for all these troubled people. She lived in kind of the rough area of town, so she attracted kind of the desperate people that lived in those neighborhoods that really needed someone to listen to them. So she provided a lot of spiritual counsel for all kinds of people. Marjorie showed up, and. Said, this is me and I just left my husband and my 14 children and I want to go on pilgrimage and everybody thinks I'm terrible and I weep all the time.
0: And she's worried. Is this from God? It, am I being deceived? I've seen these demons attacking me. Is this a demon tricking mm. me? Am I possessed? Is, is this mm-hmm. okay? What I'm doing, everyone hates me and everyone is telling me that I'm doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. I love thinking about this meeting. These two women, the respected, acknowledged mystic visionary, Mm. dispensing advice through her window. Yeah. And this middle class, rough around the edges, mother of 14, Mm -hmm. who is coming to her and saying, you're the only person who can tell me, is what I'm doing right? Because you're the only other woman I know who sees God, who talks to angels, who has these experiences. Mm. It reminds me of Hildegard. In the Catholic Middle Ages, you have to check with authority figures whether what you're hearing and doing is okay or whether it's evil. Like, (laughs) you've got to have an outside source. Which is probably a good policy for anyone who is... Talking to people no one else can see. Yeah, I I guess so. Um, That's a good check, right? Mm -hmm. But unlike Hildegard, luckily Marjorie has a woman to ask. (laughs) And much to the astonishment and probably, I'm guessing, dismay of the male religious establishment, Julian of Norwich says, you're good. (laughs) Go. Follow what you believe God wants for you. If you feel that you should go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, go.
1: And she also praised Marjorie for having what Julian called the gift of tears. And she said the gift of tears are a sign of divine presence.
0: Stop Mm -hmm. worrying about what these other people say about you. Trust your vision, (laughs) trust your experience and go. And so she did. Boy, Julian of Norwich could just put those into memes and be yeah. such an influencer in 2021. <laughs> the original influencer. Yeah. yeah. Same message a thousand yeah. years later.
1: <laughs> and so in my book, I take it a step further because Julian has written a very controversial book that she has to keep secret, Revelations of Divine Love, which is already making her vulnerable to accusations of heresy because it's in English and not in Latin. And then she's saying that God is not like trying to send you to hell for the slightest offense, that God actually loves you. And radically, and a lot of Christians would find this radical even today, she said she could see no evidence of damnation or divine wrath. She could see no evidence of hell. Her book is still really radical, and in her time, it was like she could have burned. There was a BBC documentary with Dr. Janina Ramirez called The Search for the Lost Manuscript, Julian of Norwich, because her manuscript was lost for centuries. It went underground because it was so controversial. And so she has, uh, Yanina Ramirez had this theory that Julian offered her manuscript to Marjorie because Marjorie was going on pilgrimage and Julian is, you know, literally walled into this anchorage. She can't go anywhere. So to keep her manuscript safe, she sends it along with Marjorie who can share it on her journey with people who are sympathetic to the message. In my book, Marjorie rolls up Julian's manuscript and puts it in a secret compartment in her pilgrim staff where no one will look for it. So this is fiction. I can't prove that any of this happened.
0: Interesting. And I will say, as a huge fan of both Marjorie and Julian, Okay. Canon accepted, this is what happened. Okay, I like it too. So she goes. And she doesn't stop going. Marjorie Kemp went everywhere. She went all the way to Jerusalem by herself. (sighs) She went, again, in the 1400s. She went from England to Jerusalem. Yeah, and one of the key things about a medieval pilgrimage that we don't really picture in our minds is that she's walking. They're walking the whole distance. (laughs) Yeah, she's not in a wagon. No. She's not... On Sn- some early stagecoach, she's no. walking, walking to Jerusalem. <laughs> she also walked the famous pilgrimage in Spain. Oh, Santiago yeah. To to Compostela. Yeah. She walked to Poland. She walked to Rome uh. several times. She walked all across Europe. Awesome. And she didn't just do these pilgrimages in the way that pilgrims are supposed to. Pilgrims walk the Santiago de Compostela, they arrive at the church in Spain, and -hmm. then they go home. Mm -hmm. Marjorie's gone for months and months and months. She's hanging around in Rome, soaking up the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. She is befriending locals. She becomes someone's godmother for this family (laughs) that she has just befriended and hung around with for half of a year. Cool. She is traveling. Mm. in a way that is much more similar to I think the way you and I view travel the point of travel Mm. just hanging around yeah soak it up meeting the locals yeah eating a lot of ice cream like this (laughs) is the kind of travel she seems to be doing and though she's writing about the things that are important right here are the visions here are the things that I saw these giant missing gaps of time show us that she's When she arrives in one of these cities, she's there for a long time, Mm -hmm. just apparently enjoying herself. Mm -hmm. Because she's traveling alone across several continents, this is incredibly dangerous. She's not going with an entourage. Wait, like alone alone? Alone. She's meeting up with groups, of course, But not many women are doing these pilgrimages in the first place. Yeah. She is a woman traveling by herself from pilgrimage to pilgrimage. I can't wait. I can't wrap my mind around it. Like alone, alone, alone. There's no male accompanying. She has no male chaperone of any kind. Wow. Yeah, that's bonkers. That's feminism, man. She's making a very conscious choice she probably has to fight people on it every step of the way i mean everywhere she went people are probably like you need a man and sometimes literally fight people ah. literally fighting off attackers this is a yeah. dangerous thing to do there mm-hmm. are robbers there are brigands yeah. and highwaymen all the way yeah. along this path i guess in her mind she's like i've got god with me why do i need anyone else she did she believed that jesus had told her that he would protect her on this journey so she could be courageous. And she came up with some pretty clever tactics. So she isn't a nun and she doesn't have a uniform, but she decides that she needs to set herself apart. So she dresses all in white to set herself apart as something. It seems to have been effective as a way to mark her as this is something different Mm, yeah, Maybe a religious woman, you probably shouldn't mess with her or God will be angry at you. Yeah. Let's take a moment to think Love Letter Past. It's a monthly subscription service that shares love letters of historical couples right to your mailbox. Every month, you receive a bundle of replica love letters from a real historical couple. But they're not just the letters. They also provide notes, historical background, and commentary. So you get a sense of the time that this couple was writing in and what exactly they meant to each other. And if you want to learn about couples of the past, this is such a delightful way to do it. It's a fascinating and really unusual glimpse into the past. You can get a subscription for yourself, but there's also gift options. Visit loveletterpast.com. Use the coupon code HERNAME to get 20% off your first
1: month. That's (laughs) loveletterpast.com. English people really mocked her for her tears, but when she went to the Near East and when she went to Rome, people thought it was normal. They were totally at one with her tears. One of the most interesting parts of her story is when she's traveling around the Holy Land, all Christian pilgrims had to have a local guide. Palestine was under the control of the Mamluk Egyptians. It was an Egyptian dynasty. So they had a Muslim guide for all these Christian pilgrims. Each person rode a donkey and they had this guy that led the donkey that was kind of their guardian, but also to protect against potential Christian terrorists because the crusades had ended not so long ago. and every Christian Pilgrim was a potential terrorist, so they had to be careful about these people. But one of the people that she had the most kind of supportive relationship with was her Muslim guide, because he stood up for her when the other Christian Pilgrims were laughing at her. He stood by her side, and they didn't want to go anywhere with her because she cried too loud. So he said, it's okay, Marjorie, we're good. take her individually, and they had a really kind of a nice rapport, and she was secretly really attracted to him because he was apparently very gorgeous.
0: So she traveled everywhere, cried in all of the major pilgrimage churches, even almost had her traditional eat, pray, love romance in Jerusalem, but nobly restrained herself. As she returns to England, she doesn't want to go home to the abusive husband. No. And so she decides to just sort of travel from place to place in England. And if she had just done that, she probably would have been okay. Uh oh.
1: So, of course, being who she was, she was a very talkative, garrulous person. Eventually, she evolved not just into a pilgrim, but into this preacher especially to groups of women, and that aroused a lot of suspicion because, A, it was forbidden by law for women to preach, and B, she was this long woman, rabble-roser, kind of getting other women all excited about what she was talking about.
0: We have this letter from the mayor of York expressing deep concern that this crazy woman (laughs) is going to convince all of their wives to leave them and follow (laughs) her back across the continent and so they have piper yes, they were genuinely terrified that she is such an effective preacher that she might spirit away all of the women in york (laughs) with her powerful preaching (laughs) and so she is arrested
1: Hmm. she was accused of heresy and because it was forbidden for women to preach.
0: And she is on trial for her life. This is mm. no laughing matter. They will burn her mm-hmm. if she is found guilty.
1: She's been interrogated in the Archbishop of York's court and he's a real ruthless persecutor of heretics and she's on trial for her life and he's really intimidating and everybody has done their utmost to intimidate and humiliate her and she's there the only woman surrounded by all these men all these high-ranking men
0: so in this trial she begins to preach at the archbishop of york whoa he's accusing her of all kinds of things including of speaking ill of priests so she then tells him this Very unusual parable. A priest went wandering in a wood, and he got so lost that night fell while he was still there. He fell asleep in a group of trees with a beautiful blossoming pear tree in the middle. And during the night, a great rough bear came and shook the tree and ate all of the blossoms. And then, she says... When he had eaten them, he turned his tail toward the priest and discharged them out again at his rear end. (laughs) (laughs) The priest was pretty freaked out by this and was depressed by what he thought it might mean. He felt there was a symbolic meaning to this. So he wandered around the woods, really upset and confused, where he runs into an old man. And the priest told him what had happened and explained that he didn't understand what it meant and was very upset by this then he suddenly realizes that this old man is a messenger from god what and the angel says priest you are yourself the pear tree you create these beautiful blossoms when you do mass or when you do the things that you're supposed to do as a priest But you don't have very much devotion, and you don't feel sorry about your sins, which are plentiful. And then, the old man details several of those sins. (laughs) Swearing, lying, gossip, lust. Thus, you, like the loathsome bear, destroy and devour the flowers and blossoms of virtuous living to your own endless damnation and the hindrance of many other people. Ooh. This is a pretty pointed parable, Uh which seems to be calling out the religious authorities in general, and maybe the archbishop in particular, for hypocrisy and leading the people to destruction. This could be an incredibly dangerous thing for a woman to preach at the archbishop of York in her own trial, Mm -hmm. but it seems to have struck a chord the Archbishop really liked it, he commended it and said it was a very good teaching, and the other priests and clerics who had been accusing her were silenced, and several of them indeed begged her forgiveness afterwards. So she has literally called all of these religious men to repentance, gotten away with it, been thanked for her services. And then the Archbishop asks her to pray for him What? and sends her on her way. It's quite amazing. <laughs> I-, I can understand that this would be baffling. Here is this woman using all of the right religious language. She seems to understand things about me that I don't want public. She's calling me out during her own trial. In ways that are very biblically grounded and shades of Nathan with David and the sheep. And yet she's talking about bears defecating in the woods. This is not how religious women are supposed to be. What are we supposed to do with this? She outsmarts (laughs) these men at every turn. Every time she's arrested... And they bring her in on charges. She (laughs) ends up preaching to them during her trial, where she's on trial for preaching as a woman. (laughs) And she's so good at it that she keeps being released. Her catechism was solid, and they could not argue with it. They don't know what to do with her. They're (laughs) so baffled by her that they don't dare burn her in case she's right. (laughs) And so over and over, she is arrested, tried, turned loose, kicked out of town, walks down the street, and 10 miles later (laughs) is arrested again by the next town, tried, (laughs) debates her way out of it, turned loose, 10 miles later, (laughs) she is clever and persuasive enough Mm -hmm. that no one wants to be the one responsible for burning her. (laughs)
1: After all her heresy trials, she returned to King's or to Bishop's Lynn unscathed. She wrote her book or dictated her book.
0: Then she disappears. And we don't know how her life ends. (laughs) It seems likely that it was a pretty happy ending. She returns to Bishop's Lynn, now King's Lynn. And there is a woman by the name of Marjorie Kemp who is eventually accepted into the top guild, the Merchants Guild, Mm -hmm. right? This is the peak of social acceptance. Mm -hmm. She is in. She is solidly in society. And it seems to be her. The dates match up. So she has finally been accepted, apparently, Mm -hmm. toward the end of her life. Even though she's still pilgrimaging, she's running off every few years to Europe again. She's living her best life (laughs) and seems to do it to the end that's very once interesting. her husband died and stopped blowing through all her money she s- seems to have perhaps done better mm. in business mm. well if she's in the merchant's guild and she's traveling all over then here's my theory <laughs> uh, that's what she was doing in the middle ages it was traveling and being a merchant and getting stuff and bringing it back and selling it <laughs> but turned it into religious pilgrimage <laughs> everywhere whereas really she was just this empowered traveling salesman <laughs> that's my new take it was all a business enterprise all along (laughs) why not both she is both a religious mystic and the mother of 14 she could also be a religious mystic who picks up some handy goods on the way could she? I don't know I think like I think God would be like what are you doing? are you getting forgiveness or making money? make up your mind but I think Marjorie Kemp's God would have said get it girl (laughs) Why couldn't you (laughs) combine business with your religious views? We (laughs) do it all the time. That's true. (laughs) That's true. It's always been done. And I will say, as a aspiring, wannabe, religious, wandering mystic myself, Mm -hmm. I find Marjorie Kemp absolutely inspiring and brilliant and I adore her. You're the one who wanted to be a nun in childhood so you would love her. Yeah and she did it and didn't even have to be a nun. Yeah (laughs) I think that's why I love her so much. Right yeah. The fact that she was just like I'm doing it. It's not too late. It's never too late. But it's not an autobiography. I'm just gonna it I'm totally still is. It's she's not. telling the story of her life. What nope. more do you want? No, nope. she's not. Well, the term autobiography has to mean something. When you say it, it has to mean something. You want to call it a. Bed? Thanks to Mary Sherritt, whose novel about the life of Marjorie Kemp, Revelations, comes out on April 27th. You can get your copy on our website at com or anywhere books are sold. Find links to her other books, resources, pictures, and more at our website com. Music for this episode was provided by Soulless, Choir of the Sun, and Yama Ensemble. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. Additional audio engineering for this episode provided by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle.